So we're on Philippians chapter 4, and we're looking just a few verses, verses 10 to 13. So I'm just going to read them, and then just get into uh, um, some thoughts on them. So Philippians 4, 10 to 13. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want." I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So that's where we're going. Let's go and just pray again, Father. We just pray for, as we just look at your word, we thank you, Lord, that you're preparing us um, and just through the worship, Lord, to receive this. So, Father, we pray now, Lord, as we just share this together, Lord, that you would speak to us, open our hearts, open our minds, Lord, open our ears to hear, but also, Lord, to respond to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And for many people, the secret to contentment is really just a lifelong pursuit. The trouble is, or the problem for many people, they look for it all in all the wrong places. They look at it for money, for work, for sex, for fitness, for food, and actually many more things. Actually, from the very beginning of time, things actually really haven't changed that much. Because even in Bible times, the idea of contentment was most often associated with possessions or money. Probably the second most common area to learn contentment is to learn our position within society and even within the body of the church, the body of Christ. But perhaps the third are just the practical demands of life, things like sickness, physical limitations, whether it be disability of some sort, trials, living situations, unpleasant neighbors, persecution. We, the list could go, on, could, could go on, of course. And all of these things, we need to find some level of contentment to learn what it is to be content in these places. Now, Satan uses discontentment just to undermine the work of God within our lives. In fact, the very first temptation that ever came into this world in the history of mankind was the temptation to be discontent. God had provided for Adam and Eve all that they needed, given them this beautiful garden, except they had told them he had withheld one tree from them as a test for their obedience. But Satan used that one tree to tempt them by sowing seeds of, of discontent within their heart and they chose to believe the lie of Satan rather than the truth about God. And that is exactly what discontentment is. It is a questioning of the goodness of God. And discontentment is perhaps one of the most satanic of all sins. It is rebellion against God. It is covetousness. And it always ends in disaster. Certainly true for Adam and Eve. You know the story, through that one act of discontentment, that one act of disobedience, it brought sin and death into our world. 
We see examples of, also of it in the New Testament. So we look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They sold their land, and in an attempt to look good, to, to I guess, earn some favor with those around them, perhaps they were thinking, you oh, know, if people see how much money we're giving into the, into the local church, well, then they're going to think that we're, we're great people. It's going to make them more popular within their situation, and therefore we will be happy. So they said that they give all the money into the church, but in actual fact, they held quite a lot of it back for themselves. In doing so, they lied to the apostles. Ultimately, they lied to God with tragic consequences, death. And discontentment is this focus on possessions, on position, on power, rather than on God. And it's all too easy for us to live a life of discontentment. In actual fact, we should be praying, we should be seeking God. We should be praying prayers like Psalm 119, verses 36 to 37, where we cry out to God, we say, God, turn my heart towards your statutes, towards your promises, towards your word, and not towards my own selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things, preserve my life according to to your word. So we've got these stories of Adam and Eve, the story of, of, of Ananias and Sapphira. But by contrast to these people, we look at Paul. Paul, bearing in mind he is in chains, okay? He's, he's, and yet he's still able to say, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance, verse 12. It's quite a statement. This man is in prison. He's got an uncertain future. He's separated from his family, from his friends. He's chained up, and yet he is still content. It's worth bearing in mind that there were times in Paul's life when he had everything. He was wealthy. He had power. He had everything he could ever have wanted. But also there were times in his life when he has got nothing, just like in this particular moment. But he has realized that to live in plenty can be as miserable as living with nothing if you haven't learned the secret of contentment. So if you're depending on outward external circumstances for your, depend, for, for your contentment, you're always going to be looking for more. You're always going to end up being disappointed because you're never going to get what you really think you ought to be getting within life. And you live on this emotional roller coaster, constantly changed by your circumstances, constantly changed by just everything that's going on around you. It's said that some people are either like thermostats or like thermometers. So a thermometer doesn't change anything around it. Instead, it reacts to temperature. So when the temperature goes up, guess what? It goes up. When the temperature comes down, of course, the thermometer will come back down again. But a thermostat, well, a thermostat regulates its surroundings. It changes them when those surroundings need to be changed. Now, thermometer people, they lacked power to change anything. Instead, they just get changed. They just get changed by and swayed by every single situation that comes against them. Every circumstance comes into their life. They're just up and down, changed by everything around them. Paul was a thermostat. 
Instead of having spiritual ups and downs and circumstances change, he was steady, he was dependable, he carried on working and serving the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what seemed to be thrown at him. He's not a victim to his circumstances, but he's got victory over them. And he is content, whatever the circumstance, verse 11, and he can do all things in Christ, verse 13. And he has found that his joy and his contentment is in the abundance of Jesus. In fact, he's been repeating everything he's been saying all the way through this entire letter, that the joy and the contentment is found only through and knowing Jesus Christ and being known by him. So if Christian contentment is not external, it therefore must be internal. But what it's not is some sort of self-generated contentment that is found in self-help books. Contentment is not about convincing ourselves that we are of some sort of false peace or that we are, it's not even about escaping from the difficulties of life, but rather it's the abiding peace and confidence even in the middle of battle. It's putting our trust and our confidence in God who will supply all of your needs and who will strengthen you to live for him by the Holy Spirit at work within your life. So it's not that you are self-sufficient in yourself, is that you have found sufficiency in Jesus. That's what we've been saying already this morning, is it not? We find our sufficiency in Christ. And it's because Christ lives in you that you have everything that you need for the demands of life. Yet so often we look to everything else. We still believe that a nicer house, a brand new car, a better job, a husband or a wife or whatever else is the missing ingredient. If we had that thing in my life, then I would be happy. Then I'd be content. And these things aren't wrong. They're just not the answer. Notice also that Paul says that he has learnt to be content. Contentment is not something that is just automatic as soon as you become a Christian. As soon as you give your life, to, as soon as you're saved, you don't automatically just develop this contentment. Unlike the gift of the Spirit, this is more like a fruit of the Spirit still given to us by God, but it is grown, as all fruits have to be, it is grown and it is learned. It doesn't come easily, it doesn't come naturally, it doesn't come immediately. This can take years to develop and grow. In fact, Paul, Paul had to go through many difficult experiences in life in order to learn how to be content. And God wants to teach you this godly quality within your life. It requires patience. It requires seeking after. It requires developing within our lives. Listen, a quick prayer after service or going forward for some sort of ministry time is not going to impart this. I wish it was that easy, but it's not. It may be the kickstart that you need by God's Spirit to get you looking in the right direction, but this comes through growing closer and closer and deeper and deeper, or should I say higher and higher <laughs> into God, into Christ. It's also 
strong exhortation of Scripture. Jesus has often, often spoke against covetedness. In fact, he encourages us to be content. Paul speaks about it so many times in his letters, not just his letter to the Philippians, but many of the other letters in which he writes. So the question we have to ask ourselves, how can we be content? How can we find this? What is the secret? I'm going to share th three things that I think Paul is, is alluding to and, and speaking about here in, this, in these few verses. The first one is this. It is understanding the sovereignty of God. Understanding the sovereignty of God. Jesus tells a story about a landowner who was concerned about the welfare of his workers in fact, just as much as he was about his own vineyard. In fact, he was almost more concerned about the unemployed people than he was about really making a profit. So he readily agrees to give the first workers a good wage, enough to sustain them and their families for an entire day. But as that day goes on, this landowner becomes progressively more generous. And he pays people. And so, so as the day goes on, people join the work team, they, they, they join at, at, at six hours and, and, and so on, but got to the stage at the very end of the day, people worked for one hour and got paid exactly the same amount of money as the guys who's worked for a full day. They are paid according to their need, not according to how much work they've actually done. Now, one hour of grape picking or getting paid a full day's wage for one hour of grape picking is pretty good by any standard. And God gives us not what we deserve, but he gives us so much more out of his abundant, unlimited resources. And God is sovereign and he gives and he blesses as he chooses to. Now we look at this story and we begin to think it doesn't seem fair. I mean, it doesn't seem right that a guy who works for an hour gets exactly the same amount of money as a guy who works for 10 hours. How could that be right? How could it be fair? And yet God gives us so much more than anything that we could possibly ever deserve. You see, you will never get paid minimum wage when you serve God. Truth is, what we really deserve tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. That's ultimately what we deserve. Our wages for the life that we lead, our disobedience, our sin against God, it ultimately is death. And then there's a but. And we thank God for the but. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And God gives freely to us out of his infinite love. We don't deserve it. We, we, we don't earn it. The Bible calls it grace. And because of it, we are seen as holy and without fault in Christ. And God is pleased with you because he's pleased with his son, Jesus, who covers your sins through his death on the cross. But you must take that step of faith towards Jesus. It's to turn from our sin. The Bible calls it repentance as we turn from our sin and we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and give our life over to him by faith. But we're not just saved by faith. 
So we're not just saved by grace, but we live by grace. From the very worst sinner to the very best of Christians, we all need God's grace and God's love at work within our lives. And God is always working. God does not go on holidays. He doesn't go to sleep. God is not constrained or controlled by anything within this world. In fact, the very opposite is true. He is working in advance to arrange circumstances and situations to fulfill His purposes, ultimately for His glory. And God rules, in fact, overrules in the affairs and in the details of this life. And Paul knows this, so much so that he is able to say, and we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, life is not a series of accidents. It's not just a series of chance events or just random meetings that just happen to collide sometimes. No, life is a series of appointments, divine appointments, God-orchestrated appointments within life. It was was why Abraham called God Jehovah-Jireh which means the Lord will see to it. God will do it. He's going to do it. And knowing that God is sovereign and in control should surely be a wonderful source of contentment within our lives. The second thing is this, is understanding the power of God. And Paul is very quick to let his friends know that he's not complaining in verse 11. Remember, Paul's happiness is not dependent on his circumstances or actually on anything else. His joy came from something that was much, much deeper. It was through testing and through trials that Paul had entered into this wonderful secret of contentment in spite of his poverty or even his riches. It was the power of Jesus within him that he discovered was the secret to his joy. And we need to draw on that deep resource of God by faith. Yes, through God's Word as we read in the Scriptures, but also through the power of the Holy Spirit within our lives. And if we don't do this, we become a bit like trees without roots. Don't need to be a gardener to understand this concept, but actually the most important part of a tree is not the part that you see, it's the part that you don't. It's the root system. And so it is with a Christian. The most important part of the Christian life is the part that only God sees. And Paul's motto was, I can through Christ. That can be yours too. See, the Christian has all the power that he or she needs within to equip them for the demands of life. We only need to release that power by faith. But this does not come by trusting in our own faithfulness, but actually looking to the faithful one. You need to draw on the power of Jesus for every responsibility and for every situation within life. In fact, it's the same thing that Jesus says in John chapter 15, when he talks about how he is the vine and how we are the branches. See, a branch It's only useful, it will only bear fruit when it draws on the life of the vine. Separate it, it's useless. Cut it off, it's no more than just firewood. 
So Jesus says in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Or as Paul puts it in his amazing claim in 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him, who's him? Through Christ, who gives me strength. Now, it doesn't mean that Paul has got some supernatural ability to do sort of everything and anything, but that he, in a sense, he believes in a form of prosperity gospel. I said as much to get your attention as anything else, because what I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about what we commonly refer to today as prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about a gospel that says we just name it and claim it, or that we should be multimillionaires and fly around on private jets. But rather, in Christ, you are rich. You have the unlimited resources of heaven within your reach. But so often we live in spiritual poverty and we end up chasing after trinkets and treasures and pleasures of this world, which ironically leads us to some sort of unbiblical prosperity gospel. So Paul tells the Philippians that you met my needs and God is going to meet your needs. You give out of your poverty and now God will meet your needs out of his infinite riches. But God is not promising that he will meet all of your greed. He says, I will meet all of your need. Hudson Taylor said, when God's work is done in God's way, for God's glory, it will not lack for God's supply. Or in John 7, 37 to 38, Jesus said, in fact, he said in a loud voice, it tells us, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has says, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And we can enjoy just the goodness and just the wonder of the things of God within this world. Sometimes just, you know, it's just real blessing that God has poured into our life in various different forms. We really are allowed to enjoy them. It's okay. But, and this is the key, we don't find any of them, sorry, we don't need any of them to bring contentment or happiness within our lives. So you may not have money, you may not have a house, you may not have health, you may be lacking various possessions that you wish you really had, but if you have Jesus, then you have forgiveness and peace and eternal life. And contentment comes from knowing that we live under the unlimited resources of God. We should also believe in a power gospel. Again, not that we have power to fly or to walk across water if we could just believe enough, but that our Father will give us the miraculous strength to walk with joy and with contentment through whatever life throws at you and will bring you home to his eternal kingdom safe and sound. And living with this understanding of God's power, knowing the unlimited resources of heaven surely should bring contentment. The third is this, it's understanding the unchanging promises of God. Paul did not see the gift mentioned in verse 10 
that was sent by the Philippians is simply coming from Philippi. He sees it as the supply of his needs from heaven. And Paul's trust was in God. He trusted in the unfathomable will of an all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving heavenly father. But he believed, and, and Paul believed these, the biblical promises, promises like Psalm 33, verse 10, 11, says, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, and the purposes of his heart through all generations. God's plans, God's promises will come to pass. And because of that, Paul is able to say that he has learned the secret to being content. Now, he doesn't give us a definitive answer as to what that secret is here in Philippians. But actually, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, does shed some light on this question, perhaps answers the question. So in, the, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in this chapter, we see how, Paul, how it records how Paul has been caught up into heaven, how he has heard these inexpressible things that man is not permitted to hear, probably similar to what's written about in that book, but similar things that, 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 that Paul, he's, he's, he's not allowed to talk about, he's, he's come into the presence of God, he's experienced something of the glory and the majesty of God in a way that most people never get to. And because of this, to keep Paul from being conceited over these surpassing great revelations, he is given a thorn in his flesh, it says, that torments him, causes him a great deal of distress. And there's been much speculation as to what that thorn was. Um, many scholars would suggest it maybe was something to do with his eyesight, that he, his, he lost his, his sight, either he was blind or at least partially sighted in some way. Whatever it was, he prays three times that it would be taken away from him but God did not remove it. Instead, God said to him, my grace is sufficient. And in doing so, he ties together the unchanging purposes of God, God's power, God's sovereignty, and God's promises. So in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, it says, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, the Greek word that's used here is sufficient. It's the same as the word to be content. God's grace, well, God's grace is, the, is his unmerited, undeserved favor to us through Jesus Christ. But it's also God's divine assistance, God's help to us through the Holy Spirit. So what was Paul's secret in being content? Well, it's simply this, that he had learned that God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is enough. And because of this, you can be content. But to be content, you must do what Paul did. You must accept that God's grace is, in fact, sufficient. This is not just a theological knowledge of the truth. This is an authentic, lived out, practical faith in His grace in the face of every situation and every circumstance that you face. It means that you can do everything by His grace. Or in other words, as Paul says, I can do all things through Him 
who gives me strength. And all the areas of life that you're called to be content, whether it be your possessions, your position, or just those practical demands of life, the grace of God is the ultimate solution to your discontentment. It is through God's grace that you begin to realize that you have more than you could ever deserve in Christ, and that by His Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is always available for us to help us to respond in a godly way. And as we learn this, surely this should bring us to a place of contentment alone in Christ. Because also as we look at God's grace, we, re we remember what we actually deserve is God's eternal judgment. In fact, it's said that anything this side of, of hell is pure grace. And it's so true. But that should change the way we view life, the way we view our situations, the way we think, the way in which we live. So the secret to being content in every and each situation is to live daily by God's undeserved favor, by God's grace. And this only comes through Jesus Christ, by the help and by the leading of the Holy Spirit. The question is, do you know him? We've got to go there. Do you know Jesus? Because that's where it must begin. And then, living, and then moving from that, are you living for him? Are you pressing into him? Are you seeking after him? Are you living by his grace? We are saved by grace. We come to it by faith to Jesus, by grace, and we live by grace as we live in that place of knowing Christ, being known by Him, God by His Spirit changes the way we live, the way we think, the way we approach life. As we draw closer to Him, He comes close to us. So do you know Him? Coming to know Jesus Christ is very simple. It's one step of faith towards Him. It's acknowledging that he is God, that he is Lord. It's acknowledging that he is the solution to the problems of life, your life. That he has dealt with your sin on the cross because he has. That he rose again from the dead, that he has victory over all of this. And you come and you put your hope and your trust in Jesus. You invite him to come into your life. You turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus. But that's only the beginning because there's a lifetime of learning and growing closer and closer towards your Savior. Let's just stand together. I want to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus, come and talk to myself or Mark or Rachel afterwards, and uh, we'll uh, love just to explain a little bit more of what that means. I want just want to pray. I want to pray, Father, that you would just pour your Spirit out upon us now. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you for all that you've been speaking today. Thank you for your, your word. Thank you, Lord, just for the very clear direction through the worship, Lord, that's led us to this focus on you, Lord Jesus. If I pray, Lord, just help us to keep you central, to learn, Lord, that actually the secret to finding contentment is you, Lord. 
And Father, I just pray, Lord, that from today on, Lord God, this would be a marker in our lives to walk closer and closer to you and with you in all that we do. So Father, lead us, I pray, by your Spirit. Give us the strength we need. Give us the power that we need. But Lord, we pray, Father, just do a deep work, a deep work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.